This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Dyslipidemia relates to, I would say, an unhealthy cholesterol profile that may be associated with adverse vascular and cardiovascular outcomes. For years, there was a focus on saturated fats and total fats, and we should be on a low-fat diet. Absolutely rubbish. The thing we need to be really conscious of these days is sugar and specifically refined carbohydrates. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season two of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we discuss dyslipidemia with integrative cardiologist Dr. Jason Kaplan and functional dietitian Robbie Clark. Dr. Jason Kaplan is a specialist adult cardiologist and physician with a special interest in integrative and preventative cardiology. Dyslipidemia relates to, I would say, an unhealthy cholesterol profile that may be associated with adverse vascular and cardiovascular outcomes. And I'll describe it in terms of some of the most commonly tested lipoproteins or cholesterol levels. So it may take the form of significantly elevated LDLC, um, and that can be genetic or or acquired. It may take the form of elevated triglycerides. So often people with metabolic syndrome will have elevated triglycerides, which once again can also be either acquired, acquired such as type 2 diabetes, other medical conditions, but also there are certain genetic conditions. Or we know that HDL, high levels of HDL may be protective, but there are people that genetically have lower HDL, so that's high-density lipoprotein, and that too can be associated with worse cardiovascular outcomes. So dyslipidemia relates to a broad spectrum of lipid abnormalities that may or may not cause disease in a susceptible individual. So it's these markers that I'm supposing that we're looking at initially to put together as part of the picture in regards to future cardiovascular issues. That's that's right. These, these are well studied and we know what their the trajectory is for some, some of these. We may well start to include markers such as 
you know, such as lipoprotein lipo little A, which now the European Society of Cardiology recommends testing for all adults over the age of 35. And if it's above three times normal, we know there's a significant increase in the risk of heart disease or perhaps including LDL subfractions, which may also be important at guiding lifestyle and dietary choices. And if someone came to me with a very abnormal LDL subfraction profile, such as a high proportion of small dense LDL, it's a clue that something needs to change you know, for them uh, in order not to potentially develop problems down the track. And what are the blood markers that you're looking at? This is Robbie Clark. He's a functional dietitian, exercise scientist, and ex-elite gymnast. Especially if people have come to me with very sparse information, it's like, mm. oh, I have high cholesterol. And then I look at it and all that has been tested is total cholesterol. So even then, if even if it's just LDL cholesterol that's elevated, that's not necessarily telling us that they're at high risk of a cardiac event. Mm. So I absolutely want to dive deeper, especially if they have been recommended to be put on a statin straight away or if they've been on a statin for quite some time. So that's when I will do a more comprehensive cardiovascular profile and that that is a blood profile. So this is also what I do if I suspect other comorbidities as well. But this will typically contain your total cholesterol, your triglycerides, very important, HDL, LDL, um, the ratio as well, lipoprotein A, lipoprotein B, and it will also have the lipoprotein A1 and then CRP, homocysteine, fibrinogen, mm-hmm. um, LDL subfractions. So it's the um, very low-density lipoproteins, so the VLDLs. Um, the mean particle size, that will also include fasting glucose because we know there's a huge correlation Mm. between glucose dysregulation and also um, hyperlipidemia. And then I will also look at uh, renal and liver function as well. Can you talk about some of those markers that some of our listeners might not be that well aware of, like the ApoB and the ApoA1? ApoB is essentially what we call the cholesterol-rich apolipoprotein B. And this is what we look at from inflammatory perspectives with cholesterol. So when we talk about cholesterol, we're obviously talking about inflammation. So we want to know if the particles have been oxidized, if they're causing plaque formation, and then if they are causing the risk of a cardiac event in the next 10 years. That's essentially the way that we're looking at it. So what I want to make abundantly clear is that I do not treat cholesterol. I actually treat cardiovascular risk. So getting back to ApoB, for example, it is actually now widely accepted as the most important causal agent of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And no one's really testing for it. Mm. And again, because it isn't necessarily covered by Medicare. um, So a lot of GPs do get red flagged if they prescribe certain markers 
and they don't have a rationale for it, which is why a lot of the time that they don't like to do it. And I get that. I totally get that. So that's why I will typically go through companies like Lavity, for example, or Australian Clinical Labs or Nutripath who have these cardiovascular profiles that I will get these type of clients to spend the money and do it because it will be the best money they've spent and it will really tell us from a cardiovascular perspective if they are at a great risk of a cardiac event. And then if that's showing really good signs on paper that there's low risk, the GP is still adamant to put them on statins, I will then go to the coronary artery calcium score. And now it's been widely seen as the best marker Mm. for calcification and blockage of arteries. So again, this is what I would then prescribe if my clients are still umming and ahhing around if they should be on the medication, if they shouldn't be, if they don't do don't want to be on it. Mm-hmm. So then I say to put your mind at ease, let's just see what blockage is occurring mm-hmm. in your arteries through the calcium score. Just with all of the testing that you do, what what results ring alarm bells for you? Anything that's inflammatory. So again, you know, you've got your very basic um, HDL, total cholesterol, LDL, straight off the bat. If you see elevated triglycerides paired with elevated um, LDL and low HDL, then that could be a start of the process of cardiometabolic disease. So we need to really start looking deeper in that regard because it's not necessarily telling us the bigger picture. It's just telling us what's happening on the surface. Mm. So that's why it's important to dig deeper. And again, that's why the assessment's so important. So if there's a strong family history of cardiovascular disease, and by that I mean if the cardiac events have occurred at a younger age. So if one of my clients, their mother or father, had a heart attack at the age of 45, I'd be saying there is a huge risk here huge risk compared to someone whose mother who may have had a heart attack in their 70s. So that's part of the assessment process and why it's so important is so we can actually use that as rationale, as further investigation um, for some of these tests. So, you know, even if your listeners aren't familiar with a lot of those markers I mentioned, the subfractions alone can be great. You know, the LDL subfractions, um, and that is also if you don't have access to cardiologists or GPs who will uh, refer for a calcium score, mm. LDL subfraction is uh, kind of like the, the step in between if that's what you've got to go off. So, yeah, that's readily available and easy to understand, very easy to understand that test. And something that we haven't spoken about are triglycerides. Yeah, well, I think the most important thing around triglycerides is that it's the main source of fat in our diet. Mm. You know, with cholesterol, the main cause of um, cholesterol is whether it be from genetics, but our liver. So our liver is a huge producer of cholesterol. So too is our brain. And, you know, it's very important. It plays a very important role, which is why high cholesterol shouldn't necessarily be alarming because it can be very important for hormones and um, can be protective as well. So that's why we shouldn't jump to conclusions off that. But 
with triglycerides, as I mentioned, it's the main source of fat in our diet. So therefore, it is a completely modifiable compared to something like cholesterol, for example. And we typically see these elevated levels in people who have poor dietary habits and poor nutrition, um, malnutrition. Um, so this is where I can really get my hands dirty and modify someone's diet. And just by doing that alone, you can improve the triglyceride levels and without any intervention from a nutraceutical perspective mm. or even medication because although statins have also obviously been seen to reduce cholesterol, they also do reduce triglycerides to an extent as well. Well, I see triglycerides as two issues. One, for me, it may be a marker of poor diet quality. So that will include increased refined carbohydrates, increased amounts of saturated fat in the diet, often excess alcohol, but also it sometimes can be a marker of other, other diseases disease that may damage, it can be a marker of kidney disease, of underlying genetics. But we do know that People of elevated triglycerides do have an increased incidence of vascular events. And this was shown very elegantly recently in a study published in 2020 that showed that in people who are on standard lipid-lowering therapy, and this included statins, in people that had elevated residual triglycerides, by lowering triglycerides with high-dose EPA, which is one of the components of fish oil, they had a significant reduction in cardiovascular events and the need for revascularization. So either that means either the need for stenting or, or bypass. So we know that I call it residual risk. So we know that addressing residual triglyceride risk can make a significant impact on, on subsequent cardiovascular events. Often people with diabetes or metabolic syndrome or overweight will have, will have elevated triglycerides. And we often see with dietary modification and a plant-based diet or cutting out the amount of, of bad carbohydrates that they have, they can significantly lower their triglycerides. Often you will see that there are lots of ratios talked about, the, the triglycerides to HDL ratio or the, the total to HDL ratio. But you know, as we, we spoke about in a previous podcast, I really like seeing cardiac imaging ratios using blood tests to try and predict future events or metabolic health. I like seeing exactly what is going on in someone's arteries. And do you, as well as looking at those markers and, and obviously as well the, the coronary artery calcium score, do you, again, in this case, want to see things like inflammatory markers like high-sensitivity, CRP and fasting insulin? Do you look at those in, in conjunction? On a personal level, I tend not to order fasting insulin on a, on a regular basis, though we do know that fasting insulin is associated with metabolic syndrome and maybe a marker of developing type 2 diabetes. Most of the time, I will, in terms of blood sugar, we'll look at you know the fasting blood sugar and also the the HBA the HBA one one C. But I would almost always include the high sensitivity CRP. You know, when I recommend diet and lifestyle choices for people's cardiovascular health, the same dietary patterns that go to reducing the risk factors for heart disease and the subsequent impact of heart 
subsequent event rates in cardiovascular disease will also help reduce the incidence of type 2 diabetes and also be associated with weight loss. When you improve dietary quality and cut out refined ultra-processed foods and refined carbohydrates, you'll see a reduction in fasting insulin and reduction in parameters, you know, in blood sugar parameters. So then I suppose, like you were saying before, the same dietary principles apply to somebody who comes in and they may have dyslipidemia. You would be recommending, you know, like a plant-based Mediterranean-style diet. Look, I would absolutely be recommending the same dietary pattern. And often I'll get patients will come in the primary prevention settings. They'll come being referred by their primary care doctor with elevated cholesterol. And the question comes, do they need statin therapy or what can we do? So the first protocol is a mostly plant-based Mediterranean-style diet. Um, Jenkins, who's a, who's a Canadian cardiologist, published this amazing study showing that a diet called the portfolio diet, where they actually added things to, to the diet, such as the use of soluble and insoluble fiber, and often something simple people can do is buy some raw psyllium husks from their health food shop or chemist or supermarket. This acts as, as fiber, um, and this can you know, reduce cholesterol in the gut. So adding things like psyllium, adding some plant-based protein sources such as legumes or tofu or um, other plant-based protein sources to the diet, as opposed to animal protein sources can be beneficial and adding some nuts, almonds, walnuts, and pecans. And often thinking about the addition of even something simple like plant sterols, which as you know, is often added to some fortified foods, none of which I would probably recommend to my patients, but you can take them as a supplement from some manufacturers. And these can reduce LDLC by about nine to 10%. So what Jenkins showed that by adding some of these things to a healthy dietary pattern, he could get the same clinical effect as by commencing someone on low-dose statin. So they can achieve somewhere between a 25 to 30% reduction in LDL, which is the same as taking 10 milligrams of simvastatin or 20 milligrams of pravastatin or even 5 milligrams of rosuvastatin. So these things can be quite powerful. And that, that's just the often the first line. You know, we do have other, and I, I, I tell them about nutraceuticals and that may be helpful at, at lipid lowering. So we do know that, that berberine can be very helpful. And in some studies that has been shown to lower LDL by, by around 20%. So the addition of some of certain nutraceuticals may be helpful. And then I talked earlier about high dose EPA or omega-3. So in actual fact, when someone comes to me with particularly elevated triglyceride levels, one of the first things I'll ask them to do is start some high-dose omega-3 fish oil supplements that has a high-dose of EPA and DHA and give, they have to actually take slightly higher doses than they would for, for, other, for other indications. But if you start off on six high-strength capsules a day, spread out through the day, you'll see significant reduction in triglyceride levels. And um, just on the topic of supplementation, apart from the ones that you've mentioned, are there any others that you might use in this situation? So often people will come and they said they've heard about red rice yeast. So red rice yeast is basically where statins came from. So there's a compound in red rice yeast 
that is called monocolon A, and that's where one of the first statins was originally derived from. So red rice yeast, people can try red rice yeast, especially if they've had side effects on statins. It has an effect at lipid lowering. The challenge that we found over the last few years in Australia is a, is a reliable formulation, but that certainly can work and reduce uh, and reduce the LDLC. Um, as mentioned, you know, plant plant sterols, uh, berberine, omega three fish oil capsules. Um, often, aged garlic extract can also have an effect on on the lipid profile as well. And as well as spir- I've had some patients who've had some success with spirulina as well. So as I mentioned, and again, this might be a shock for a lot of people, there's, for years there was a focus on saturated fats and total fats, and we should be on a low-fat diet. Absolutely rubbish. Robbie Clark. The thing we need to be really conscious of these days is sugar, and specifically refined carbohydrates. So everything that we buy off the shelf has been processed. And that is undeniable. And it's the carbohydrate-based foods that particularly go through a process of adding added sugars or being refined. So our milling processes with our flours mm-hmm. are definitely nowhere near the same as they are in some places in Europe, for example. It, it really is the driver from a dietary perspective is when I am assessing, I'm looking at what we can modify from the simple carbohydrates, the refined carbohydrates, and also added sugars from confectionery, from processed foods, takeaways. I mean, hello, we have Uber Eats and uh, delivery at our fingertips and we love a Friday night on the couch, particularly in bad weather, where we might have some wine and Uber Eats. Mm-hmm. These are two types of food groups that are causing elevation in triglycerides. So, yeah, alcohol is a massive driver as well. So, yes, from a dietary perspective, it's mainly sugars and carbohydrates that we should be focusing on over saturated fats. And to be honest, trans fats is a standalone from the fat because we know how inflammatory they are. So I group trans fats in with the refined carbs and sugars that I assess, definitely. So do you use supplementation in these cases or purely diet? I will definitely use supplementation. And what we find, which is very unfortunate for a lot of people already diagnosed with hypercholesterolemia, is that it's easier to pop a pill than it is to make any lifestyle modifications around diet, exercise, stress and sleep, Mm. which we know are the pillars of improving these chronic conditions. So a lot of people do come to me and say, oh, I'd much rather take a pill. So I do gauge these clients from the get-go and say, okay, these people will probably respond really well to supplementation over trying to make some modifications to their diet or their exercise. So Mm. I will look at that. But from a supplemental perspective, there's basically the big five, okay? It's quite easy to summarise. Bergamot. Um, which is a, a forgot, a forgotten kind of mm. fruit and nutrient that is really fantastic because there's a lot of studies done using bergamot in conjunction with either statins or a standalone, and it has been shown to inhibit oxidation of LDL particles 
and it has statin-like mechanisms due to the polyphenols and the flavonoids that may inhibit that HMG-CoA reductase, which I talked about earlier, Mm. and that's the main enzyme responsible for cholesterol synthesis. And a second mechanism that has been proposed with bergamot, the polyphenols that is, is the activation of adenosine monophosphate activated protein kinase, which is that good old AMPK, which also needs a lot of discussion, um, particularly around cardiometabolic conditions. And the activation of AMPK by small molecules improves glucose homeostasis, lipid profiles in general, blood pressure, and insulin resistance. Mm. So as you can see across the board, bergamot has a really good value there. Mm. Secondly, ubiquinol. So you know we've talked about that. Um, And we also know that it is reduced or CoQ10 levels are reduced in people taking statins. So they should absolutely be prescribed alongside if someone is on a statin without fail. And um, so, yeah, I'm finding that I'm needing to do that for those clients who already come to me who are already on a statin. And the magnesium orotate, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and the reason being is because orotate lifts up the ubiquinol in the mitochondria and the orotic acid um, part of the magnesium orotate is quite unique in helping to kickstart the manufacture of more myocardial protein for damaged heart tissue in those patients who experienced a heart attack. So that's where the studies of magnesium orotate have come in. And it also stimulates the synthesis of glycogen and also ATP in the mitochondria. Mm. Occasionally, not all the time, but like to add in some aged garlic extract um, or chiolic garlic, which some practice might know it as, Mm. because this alone has been shown to help improve blood pressure, so reduce even hypertension, and also uh, cholesterol levels. And then finally, my favourite, which doesn't get a lot of popularity or media, is vitamin K2. And vitamin K2 is also affected by statin therapy. And that is something that a lot of pracs um, also are unaware of. And it has to be the MenoQ7 version of K2 if you're going to supplement with it. And you can supplement up to 180 micrograms per day. And the reason why we need want to supplement with K2 is because it takes the calcium out of the arteries and puts it back into the bones where it belongs. Mm. So those who know about calcium metabolism with osteoporosis or osteopenia, they know the importance of K2 in that process just as much as vitamin D, magnesium uh, and calcium. So K2 doesn't really get a lot of attention. But from a cardiovascular perspective, it's absolutely vital. And what about the effectiveness of statins? Like, Do you want to comment on that or do you feel like you can comment on that? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it's important for me to preface this with that I am not a medical professional. Mm -hmm. Um, So my thoughts are purely based on from what I've learned through working alongside cardiologists and specifically more the integrative cardiologists who mm. like to promote lifestyle modifications, which includes diet, exercise, and nutraceuticals above statin use if it's warranted. So that's really, really important. 
So firstly, I think it's important for for a lot of pracs who might be listening to this who actually don't know the mechanism of statins, it's their main role is to prevent cholesterol forming in the liver by blocking the HMG-CoA reductase. So I've talked a lot about that. And obviously, as a result, it lowers the risk of stroke and heart attack. Mm. And it's the Lipitor and the Crestor, which is the most widely known statins that are used here in Australia. And look, it's undeniable that they do work. Okay, anyone who debates that is just foolish. So they absolutely have a place at lowering cholesterol. But what is questionable is some people who are on them is if they actually have to be on them in the first place. And are they actually benefiting from the statin itself? So that is the bigger question that we need to be asking. And what research has shown is that the only people who significantly benefit from statin therapy to lower their cholesterol are those with existing heart disease, Mm -hmm. that is prior heart attack, have had a stent put in, a coronary bypass surgery, or even a a coronary equivalent related to atherosclerosis, such as an ischemic stroke or peripheral vascular disease. So that's when we absolutely know for sure that they have an important use and benefit. And another group where I believe statin therapy is indicated is in people with a high coronary calcium score that places them above the 75th percentile in their age group. Mm. So again, that's why the calcium score, coronary calcium scoring is extremely beneficial when assessing someone's risk of having a cardiac event in 10 years based on how clogged their arteries are. Mm. So if someone has been presented with high cholesterol, but we do a calcium score and their score is zero and they don't have any prior cardiovascular risk, then these people don't necessarily need to be on a statin. Mm. And, of course, I get that confirmation from the cardiologist. I don't just make that sweeping statement. But the cardiologists I work with, as I mentioned, agree with that statement and they will absolutely then make sure that this particular patient is managing this elevated or hypercholesterolemia through lifestyle modification. Is there anything that you'd like to add to this topic, Robbie, that I haven't asked you? Look, I think it's just um, important to note is that I think a lot of pracs in the functional space especially just know how terrible statins can be, particularly from a side effect perspective. And that I absolutely agree with. So, you know, you're weighing up cause and effect and and that, and they definitely get a bum rap. So although I am a supporter of the sensible use of statins for the right cases, mm-hmm. I do see them as an adjunct um, to a healthy lifestyle. And as I mentioned earlier, it is so much easier for someone to pop a pill mm-hmm. to treat a condition than to put in the hard yards and the hard work to improve it. So I think from when you are treating complex cardiometabolic conditions, because they can be multiple, not just a standalone, there's usually multiple, Mm -hmm. you need to be patient with these clients. You need to express empathy and you need to look at what is in their control and work with them by making small modifications that you know in the long term are going to have profound effects on improving their health. 
And a lot of the time it might be focusing on particular things like it might just be supplements as a standalone. It might be diet as a standalone first, exercise, and then you try to bring it all together. It just depends on the patient themselves and you have to work with that. In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we discuss ischemic heart disease with integrative cardiologist Dr. Jason Kaplan and specialist GP Dr. Sandeep Gupta. And related to that, Dr. Michael Osiki discusses dementia. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept.